Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we welcome political scientist Aaron Good. We'll be talking about his forthcoming book, American Exception, Empire and the Deep State. We'll be talking about it through the lens of his new podcast of the same name. It's a political and historical series with fantastic conversations with well-known journalists and historians. While talking to Aaron Good today, we'll also share excerpts of a conversation he had recently with historian and journalist David Talbot. They discussed brothers, the hidden history of the Kennedy years. Today on the Project Censored show, an hour on American Exception. Stay with us. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we want to welcome back political scientist Dr. Aaron Good. He's the host of a new podcast called American Exception, and it is based on his doctoral dissertation, American Exception, Empire in the Deep State. That is also the title of a forthcoming book, American Exception, Empire in the Deep State, by Aaron Good, forthcoming by Skyhorse Publishing out of New York, and that will be published later on this spring. Those of you that listen to the Project Censored show regularly may remember Aaron Good. He's been on the show several times. We've done numerous events together over the years. And this past year, Aaron started this podcast I mentioned a moment ago called American Exception. And I brought him back on the show today to feature, not only let him talk a little bit about this whole project that he's embarking upon, but also to feature some of the work he's done on it, done historic conversations and conducted historic conversations with some of the most important scholars, historians, and journalists around hidden histories, around untold histories, around histories of the deep state. And they're pretty profound. So, Aaron Good, welcome back to the Project Censored Show to talk about American Exception today. Thanks, Mickey. It's great to be here. So, Aaron, tell us about the process here that led you to taking the book idea, adapting it to this podcast, American Exception. And, of course, on the program today, what we want to do is we want to feature a stellar conversation and interview that you did with historian and journalist David Talbot on Brothers, the hidden history of the Kennedy years. Of course, this all dovetails on the work that you've been involved in around the assassination of John F. Kennedy, the recent documentary from Oliver Stone, and so forth. So go ahead and tell, tell our listeners a little bit about what's happening. Well, I spent a long time getting my dissertation finished and getting my political science PhD completed, all the work for that. And right when I did, in March of 2020, was when the educational system went into lockdown mode. And I was teaching at a high school at the time where I have been teaching for about seven years. And that was really a drag, but uh, it was the light at the end of the tunnel with my dissertation was, was not what I expected. But uh, I taught for um, the rest of that year and then another year. And all the messages I'd been getting from people about higher ed was that this was a, not the best time to enter into higher education. And I also knew that I was, had written a really radical dissertation on the criminality of the state and of the U.S. empire and what the U.S. empire's kind of lawless methods and aims are. So it was going to be difficult to get a tenured professorship at this particular time of COVID and everything else. And so the podcast seemed like a natural way to be able to promote these things and talk about these things in our kind of dystopian 2021 United States of America. So I 
set about trying to put these together, these episodes together that I already have done. And since the Kennedy assassination is becoming a hot topic again to some degree, thanks to Oliver Stone's documentary, I spoke to the co-creator of Oliver Stone's new JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass documentary, uh, Jim Diogenio, and I tried to persuade him to help me produce this podcast series on the Kennedy assassination, which is something of an unofficial accompaniment to the two Oliver Stone documentaries. One of them is already shown on Showtime. That's a two-hour version. And then a four-hour version is coming out at the end of February. And that one is going to be called Destiny Betrayed. It's going to be the subtitle, I believe. So we've interviewed a number of people that are that featured in the movie and some who aren't for this podcast series. And David Talbot's episode that people are going to hear today is one that I think turned out really well. And it features David Talbot talking about Brothers, which is his book about Robert Kennedy and John Kennedy, the Kennedy administration itself, and then Robert Kennedy's quest to find out the truth about his brother's assassination. And so it's a fantastic conversation. David's a wonderful guy. I know you've had him on here before, so I don't have to tell you or your listeners that, but uh, it was a real honor to interview him in this capacity. And he's going to do a second one down the road on Devil's Chessboard to talk about Alan Dulles. Yeah, that's fantastic, Aaron Good. And again, we're going to share excerpts of your conversation with historian and journalist David Talbot today about his masterpiece, Brothers, The Hidden History of the Kennedy Years. You've spoken with Daniel Ellsberg, Peter Dale Scott, a number of interviews with Peter Dale Scott, a tribute to the great Lance DeHaven Smith. This is all part of your new series on American Exception, the podcast. So with that, Aaron Good, before we start this conversation with David Talbot, you want to tell anybody where they can go and find more information about your new series, your new podcast? Well, the podcast is hosted by Patreon, and some of the episodes are already unlocked and available for free, but it is a subscription podcast. So you can Google American Exception Patreon, or you can put a link in the show notes when you post it online. And the book you can find on Amazon or other places, if you just search American Exception Aaron Good, you can find that. And there's a page up for it for Skyhorse also. And eventually, AmericanException.com is a domain name that I have, and I'm going to start posting things there once that is up and running. So hopefully when that happens, I can come back on to talk about some of these things that we're going to put there, including articles that I hope to be working on in the near future. Well, certainly articles and topics that we're interested in here at Project Censored, because they definitely are topics that don't get judicious coverage or deep coverage by the corporate press or other more mainstream scholars. So very important work, Aaron Good. And with that, I would like to share excerpts of your conversation of the interview you did with historian and journalist David Talbot about his book, Brothers, The Hidden History of the Kennedy Years. David Talbot, it's great to be talking with you today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Aaron. So we're going to be talking about your book, Brothers, which came out in 2007, I believe. You wrote at Salon. You founded Salon. You used to work at Mother Jones before that. So you had a lot of experience in journalism. And I, I recall 
a long time ago, I don't know if this is going to make you sad for me to bring this up, that you wrote an article at Salon with something with the title of The Man Who Solved the Kennedy Assassination. It was about Robert Blakey. You're going to embarrass me, huh? Well, I worked for Barack Obama, so I'm used to revising my views as I learn more things, which I think is, is really what any honest intellectual person should do. So how did you end up writing the book Brothers? What led you to write this book? Because it's, it's the book I recommend is like the first book that people should read to understand the Kennedy presidency and assassination. I think it's a phenomenal book. What led your views to evolve and, and motivate you to write this book? Well, thank you, Aaron, for, for saying that. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, as a journalist, and you probably have, have had this experience too, we learn in public sometimes. And so our earlier writing about subjects is often not fully formed or complete, or in my case, accurate. <laughs> so I began writing about the Kennedy assassination. Actually, even before the article you mentioned, I was editing the Sunday magazine of the newspapers here in San Francisco. It was called Image, that magazine. And my first article appeared after Oliver Stone's film, JFK, came out in 1991. And that film blew my mind. I felt, you know, that he had explained to me what happened in Dallas. And I was, like most journalists, though, very conflicted with the idea about a conspiracy and so forth. And that is the third rail. And I knew enough about journalism at that point to know that anyone who went there deeply into the subject of the Kennedy assassination was touching the third rail, a very heavy taboo in American journalism. But Oliver had really roiled you know, everything in America. And of course, forced Congress to pass the JFK Records Collection Act, which compelled the release of a lot of documents. As we know, not all the documents, they're still being withheld at this late date, many of them, many relevant ones by the CIA against the law. President Biden so far seems to be going along with them on that. But Oliver did at least crack open the long-standing kind of writing of thousands of JFK-related documents. I couldn't devote myself full-time to it. I had a day job as an editor. I started Salon, as you said, in 1995. But it always intrigued me, the subject. And I learned, as I say, in public. At first, I came to the conclusion that the mafia was indeed the primary agent behind the assassination of President Kennedy. And I agreed with Bob Blakey, Robert Blakey, who is, of course, a chief counsel, the chief counsel of the House Select Committee on Assassinations in the 1970s. And Bob had come from that background, had worked in Bobby Kennedy's Justice Department as a prosecutor of organized crime. And that was his bias. He really was looking heavily at the mafia's role. And I think they did play some role in the assassination. But it was above their pay grade, the assassination and certainly the cover-up. So at one point, I thought Blakey got it right. I wrote an article in Salon saying that, saying the mafia basically was the main culprit behind the assassination. My thinking evolved as I did more research. And frankly, the opening, the aha moment for me came about two years before my book was published, Brothers, probably three years before. I just had just begun to do research. I knew I was going to leave Salon at that point. And the subject that really haunted me still at that point was the Kennedy assassination and trying to figure out what really happened. So the aha moment was when I read that Bobby Kennedy, who was, of course, his brother's devoted protector, the attorney general in that administration, 
the one who knew more about the dark side of power, probably, as Arthur Schlesinger said, than any other living American at the time. When I read that he doubted the Warren Report and that he himself was privately looking into the case with the idea of opening up again if he had made it to the White House in 68. Do you know where you read that? Was that with Mark Lane? No, I remember reading in a book, I think, about Bobby. I think it was Schlesinger's book, which was is still the best biography of Robert Kennedy, Arthur Schlesinger. And I think there was an elliptical passing remark that Bobby Kennedy had not fully embraced the Warren Report. And that, to me, was very intriguing. And that's all I needed to know. From that point on, I knew I had to interview every living person who was connected to Bobby, who had worked closely with him, Dick Goodwin, Adam Walensky, Peter Edelman, Robert McNamara, people who were in the first Kennedy presidency, who were in the only Kennedy president, Ted Sorensen, Arthur Schlesinger, and they were all living at that time, Nick Katzenbeck. And I interviewed all of them. I interviewed dozens of people who had worked closely with both Kennedys, and I found out that Bobby Kennedy who, as I say, had been the attorney general, the chief hunter of organized crime in America from the Senate Rackets Committee in the 1950s on, he himself believed that it was a high domestic conspiracy that had claimed the life of his brother, and he was going to reopen the case if he'd made it back to the White House. So once I did that, I started following Bobby's path, his investigative path, and that's what Brothers is based on. The interesting thing about your book is that I credit your book with really firmly establishing what Robert Kennedy thought about the assassination, because as you said, you, you mentioned the Schlesinger biography, which mentions it in passing. And then there's also this 1975 interview. It's on YouTube. It wouldn't have been widely accessible until now, probably. It's an event with Peter Dell Scott and Dick Gregory and Mark Lane. And Mark Lane talks about RFK. And his back channel talks with the Garrison investigation. So these things actually were out there, but yet had never really been established in the public consciousness. In fact, the RFK thing was sort of used as a propaganda line to say like, well, if there was a conspiracy, don't you think Robert Kennedy would have done something? It speaks to the power of these people that the Attorney General of the United States felt they were beyond his reach. You're right. The CIA did use Bobby Kennedy's silence about the Warren Report to confirm their theory that, of course, they got it right. The Warren Report was correct. But as I document very heavily in Brothers, from day one, Bobby Kennedy was the original conspiracy theorist. He knew. He sent his top investigator, Walt Sheridan, to Chicago to look into the background of Jack Ruby. Frank Mankiewicz, who was Bobby Kennedy's press spokesperson when he was senator and ran for president in 68, Frank Mankiewicz told me that when Bobby looked at the records, the phone records of Jack Ruby in the days before he shot Oswald in Dallas, that it read like the witness list of the Senate Rackets Committee. They were all organized crime figures. Jack Ruby was completely mobbed up. So what was he doing shooting Oswald, silencing him just days after the assassination that very weekend? So the whole thing, Bobby smelled the rat right away. And I it talked to Ed Guthman, another top-level person who worked with Bobby, part of his band of brothers at the Justice Department. I interviewed every living person who was connected to Bobby. They all said that Bobby immediately smelled a rat and thought that this assassination had grown out of the government's plot against Cuba, against Castro, and involved the CIA, the mafia, and right-wing Cuban exiles. But the CIA was the dominant agency. Bobby knew that. 
the CIA had gone to the mafia early on to work with the mafia to kill Castro. They used the mafia to do their dirty work. So he knew that it was a two-headed or three-headed with the Cuban exiles, Gorgon, and that he knew was probably the source of the conspiracy against his brother. Yeah, the Ruby mob stuff is really wild because, and, and from the RFK angle even, because he wrote his book about organized crime, The Enemy Within, right? That was the name yeah. of it. And, and he mentions that murder of the junk handlers union president as being, you know, a pivotal moment in the, you know, the mob teamsters pension takeover, right? And Jack Ruby was like a, the witness in the room, the only witness to that murder. He was in the room when that murder happened. I mean, he was involved in all of these events. Like it had to be a little terrifying for Robert Kennedy to realize that these sort of networks, because he, the enemy within and, the, and his struggles to go after these people, but also to document the kind of level of corruption, which went beyond just some Italian bosses in this or that neighborhood. It was something much more systemic. That book reads in a way as like a early attempt to like deal with the American deep state in a way, or a big part of it. He saw them as being intertwined with society, and then he couldn't do anything about it. It's remarkable. I think you're making the right connections, the connections that Bobby Kennedy himself made as the chief investigator, chief counsel for the Senate Rackets Committee in the 1950s, which he brought his brother into, by the way, then-Senator John Kennedy because he wanted his brother to actually take credit for some of this investigation. But you're right. Bobby just wasn't interested in a few Italian godfathers. He was mostly concerned about how intertwined organized crime was becoming with the labor movement, with the political culture in America, with big business. What we've seen in, in many other countries, I just read this morning about corruption in South Africa and how damaging that's been for one presidency after the other and now for the current administration there. And so Bobby Kennedy saw these alliances, these dark alliances being made, and it was a kind of violent underworld of power that he understood. And he, I think he understood better than any other public figure. And he educated his brother, JFK, about it. So I think that when he heard in 1962, directly from the CIA, from the chief counsel of the CIA, and from the head of security, that they had made an alliance with the mafia to kill Castro. He was genuinely angry, furious, and stunned that the CIA would be doing business with gangsters, the gangsters he was trying to put in jail. So this, to Bobby, was a sign that this dark alliance, as you say, had really penetrated the top levels of American government. And he not only wanted to go after that underworld, you know, political economy, but he felt that there wasn't sufficient public understanding of it. So he writes the book and you document in Brothers how he couldn't get that made into a movie, despite being who he was. Yeah, to me, that's a, an amazing story. And as far as I know, I'm the only one who's looked into it in any depth. He had Bud Schulberg, who had won the Academy Award for his screenplay for On the Waterfront, write a screenplay. I read the screenplay. It's dramatic. It's riveting. It's about Bobby Kennedy's attempt to crack down organized crime in America. These thugs who are actually, as you say, becoming more and more linked with the top levels of power. And he had Paul Newman, a major actor, going to play him as the lead. They had a great producer, Jerry Wald, who was a very prominent producer in Hollywood at the time. So the project looked like it was definitely going to get made. 
And then Jerry Wald died of a heart attack at age, I think, 49. He dropped dead suddenly of a heart attack. And then every studio from then on that was uh, flirting with doing the movie was soon put under enormous pressure from organized crime, from the Teamsters Union, and from other unions in Hollywood that were also mob-connected. And so no studio would touch it. They threatened them. Bud Shelby tells the story of a movie star who was supposed to play a leading role in the film, came to him in tears, saying, they're going to kill me if I do this movie. So that's kind of like, you know, leverage they had over Hollywood. And if they could stop the attorney general, the second most powerful person in the country, and, you know, top people in Hollywood, creative people, from making this film, then they had the power to do anything. They knew they had this power, though, organized crime, because they had become so intertwined with major institutions like the CIA. Peter Dale Scott, in his discussions on the deep political system of the United States, you can see that articulated there, but it's on the fringes of academia because it's too much for academia to deal with. And then you see it rendered. I actually think that the Scorsese Boardwalk Empire said at the time that it is really is like a, an earlier 20th century version of the deep political system of the United States because the protagonist, I don't know if you've seen the whole series, but the protagonist, he's a Democratic Party boss and functionary in the party, but then he just becomes this crime boss basically and is a big part of Atlantic City all around. And so it's like there's so much overlap between the legitimate system and this underworld that it's one thing. It's not the legitimate side and then, oh, there's some bad people doing some other stuff. It's like the, the overworld of, of power and the legitimate legitimate system is intertwined. It relies on the underworld in different ways. Well, I think the Kennedys felt they could take on these powerful centers of, of dark power. And they, you have to say, because of their wealthy background and the way they were raised, felt that they could win. And that they could take them on. Bobby Kennedy was warned that the Teamsters had staked out his house, Hickory Hill, suburban uh, Washington, Virginia, the state where he was raising at the time, I believe, eight children. Finally, he had 11 kids, I think, he and Ethel. And yet, you know, there was no bodyguards. There was no security there. But these thugs were basically scouting the house, uh, had it under surveillance. Jimmy Hoffa later was reported to have issued death threats against him, the head of the Teamsters Union. And when Bobby was told about this as attorney general, he just shrugged his shoulders, laughed it off, and continued driving to work in his convertible, an open car. They they planned to shoot him with a sniper or throw a bomb, a firebomb, into his house and kill everyone in the house, his whole family. So it was a kind of reckless courage the Kennedys had. JFK himself, as I write in Brothers, talked more and more about assassination and about coups throughout his thousand days in the White House. He was aware, he had very, I think, sensitive political feelers about the kind of animosities that his policies were incurring in Washington, the military-industrial complex, the Pentagon, the CIA, the mafia, were all furious and wanted to get rid of him. You're listening to The Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We'll continue hearing excerpts of this conversation between Aaron Good and David Talbot on the Kennedy Brothers after this brief musical break. Stay with us. I think the national security state grew in conjunction with the growth of the U.S. empire in the 20th century. And by the time Kennedy came along in 1961 
in office. It was a very powerful enemy. And of course, President Eisenhower warned the country at the end of his presidency and his farewell speech about the so-called military-industrial complex. Now, it was easy for him, old Ike, to warn us about it because he'd overseen the vast growth of the military-industrial complex during his two terms as president. And then he kind of just threw it in Kennedy's lap and, and left Washington. It was sort of a convenient exit. But Kennedy took it on right away. He fires Alan Dulles, the head of the CIA, right after the Bay of Pigs disaster in Cuba. He eases him out the door. He treats him honorably. He has him to the White House, says he's you know performed great service over the years to the nation and so on. But Alan Dulles was very bitter, very resentful about his defenestration from American government. He'd served every president since Woodrow Wilson. He felt that he and his brother Foster, who had died, who was Secretary of State John Foster Dulles under Eisenhower, that they were American power, that they and people like them and the clients they served when they were corporate lawyers in Wall Street, Walt mm-hmm. Sullivan, Cromwell, and later in Washington, that the powerful men that they served as lawyers and later as heads of government in Washington, that was the true American power. People like the Rockefellers, the DuPonts, and the other families who they represented. Douglas Dillon, who was head of the Treasury and the Secret Service, ominously under President Kennedy, was another close friend of Alan Dulles. And what does Alan Dulles do at age, what, 67 or so when he's forced out by uh, President Kennedy? Does he go quietly into the twilight? No. He goes back to his home in Georgetown, and he sets up a government in exile, as I document in my other book, The Devil's Chessboard. And people continue to report to him, people high up in the CIA, like Richard Helms, James Angleton, Howard Hunt, came to his doors, sat down with them. They didn't treat John McCone, the guy who Kennedy had put in his place as the director of the CIA. They continued to treat Alan Dulles. And I think Alan Dulles has to be a major figure of suspicion for anyone who does any kind of serious research about the Kennedy assassination. Yeah, he seems to have been undermining Kennedy's foreign policy before Kennedy even took office because there's that famous picture of uh, Kennedy on February 13th, 1961, where he's got his, he's on the phone and his, his head is buried in his hand. He's looking very despondent. It's him getting the news about Patrice Lumumba's death. And you write in Devil's Chessboard, which I think maybe the Alan Dulles discussion mostly will be for a later episode, maybe next year. But you mentioned that this was likely expedited, this assassination, because Dulles and, and company knew that Kennedy's policy towards African nationalism was different. That's right. The CIA was undermining JFK from the time he was elected, even before he was sworn in as president. As you say, they were behind the, the torture and the brutal assassination of Patrice Lumumba in Congo, formerly the Belgian Congo. He was a charismatic nationalist leader, not a communist, as he was accused of being, but someone who wanted to nationalize the huge mining concerns owned by Belgian and American companies and represented by the Dulles brothers once again. So when they authorized or they convinced President Eisenhower that Patrice Lumumba should be the target of assassination, they were actually looking out for their own commercial interests and their clients as well as supposedly the interests of the U.S. But he was a very popular figure in Congo. He was kidnapped by uh, 
military within the Congo, backed by the CIA, and CIA thugs, basically, sponsored thugs, killed him. And Dulles did not even inform Kennedy about this, did not inform that he was, his life was in danger and that he was finally assassinated. And the CIA knew all about it. The CIA was behind it. And yet, during the first days of the Kennedy presidency, they kept the president in the dark. And finally, the picture you referred to, the photo by Jacques Lowe, who was a White House photographer, famous photo now of Kennedy with his face crumpling into his hand. He's just heard the terrible news about Patrice Lumumba, not from the CIA, but from Adlai Stevenson, his envoy at the UN. So they had contempt for Kennedy from day one, even before the Bay of Pigs, which uh, occurred in April of 61, shortly after he became president. As I say, they didn't even wait for him to be sworn in before they were undermining his presidency. This is the kind of arrogance that the deep state, the CIA, the national security state, whatever you want to call them, shows for elected power in this country. In retrospect, I think that Obama was presented with a similar situation. You know, whether they time it this way or not, I don't know, but I wouldn't put it, I wouldn't be surprised. But when he took office, there was that coup in Honduras very early on. And I wonder if they try to establish their control of a new administration in certain ways by like not letting them even really get their bearings before they have to face some kind of decision like this. Because it had to have been in the planning before Obama. And what did he do? Nothing. Hillary recognized the new regime, said it wasn't a coup, and, and that was that. Well, look, when you assassinate a charismatic, popular, young American president on the streets, the sunny streets in the afternoon on a major, a major American city and splatter his brains literally all over his wife, you're sending a message not only to other people who would challenge your power at the time, but to all future presidents. The people who make it to the White House usually are fairly savvy people, politically savvy. Bill Clinton wanted to know. He had his attorney general look into who really killed Kennedy. And he reported back to him, it's above my pay grade. So every president, I think, has been curious about this area, who really killed Kennedy, but is afraid at some point on some level to really challenge these people or to go there. And the media has definitely been cowed and complicit, I think, in this cover-up. And I think every political figure, every president since Kennedy has been intimidated by this because they know what the results can be if you really stand up against these people and challenge the power. Yeah, because, I mean, early in Kennedy's presidency, there were two occasions with Laos. His generals were basically saying, we pretty much must introduce troops to Laos. And he opted for a neutral solution. And then with the Bay of Pigs, he also refused to send in you know, the U.S. military overtly. So how did these things set the stage for these early confrontations? How did they set the stage for the rest of Kennedy's presidency and the way he was going to try to deal with these forces? Well, Cuba was one of the hot spots, was one of the front lines of the Cold War. So how you resolve that question? Here's a communist nation just miles from U.S. shores. And you can't really, at this late date, imagine how volatile an issue Cuba was for people in Washington. Kennedy, as you say, is kind of sandbagged into going along with the Bay of Pigs invasion. But as I document in Brothers and Devil's Chessboard, that invasion backed by the CIA all along, I thought, was designed to be a failure. 
They were kind of a ragtag group of Cuban exiles. They were going to bog down the beach. But then Alan Dulles and the top generals of the Pentagon thought Kennedy would cave to pressure and panic, as most presidents would have in that situation, and send in the Marines in the U.S. Air Force to save the people on the beach and to knock out Castro. He didn't. He told him he wanted this to be a quiet operation. It was by now not a quiet operation. He was furious. He thought that he'd been sandbagged by the CIA, by Alan Dulles and Richard Bissell, the number two guy at the CIA who was in charge of the Bay of Pigs operation. And he told them, I'm not going to escalate. I'm not going to have a full-out war. He thought the Soviet Union might make moves on Berlin, West Berlin at the time, and it would quickly escalate into a global confrontation with not only Cuba, but with the Soviet Union. So he pulled the plug on it, and Alan Dulles was stunned, didn't know what to do at that point. The generals were stunned. From that point on, they think Kennedy is a weak sister, as the, to use a term from seven days in May, that he's a coward, that he won't stand up to the communist threat. What Kennedy was trying to do was end the Cold War. And as Robert McNamara, who was Secretary of Defense, of course, under Kennedy and under Lyndon Johnson, told me during my interview with him, every American should read the peace speech that he gave at American University in June 1963. It's still a remarkable speech. No American president, even today, could deliver a speech like that, in which he says, basically, we have to have sympathy for our enemies, enemies who we've been taught to hate and despise for years, the Soviets, the Russians, and the communists in general. He says, we all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's future. We're all human beings. We all are mortal. That's powerful rhetoric. And that is the rhetoric of appeasement to the hardliners, the cold warriors in the Pentagon, the CIA. They thought Kennedy was a threat to national security. What he was, it was a threat to their power. And they weren't going to put up with that. And so I think that was the motivation for the assassination in Dallas. I think Kennedy was trying to end the Cold War. That was the fundamental truth about the Kennedy presidency. He was also, by the way, ahead of his time on civil rights. He's not been given full credit for what he did. But his speech, within hours, by the way, of the peace speech, his speech to the nation, televised address about civil rights, also should be taught in every school, in which he says, who among us, what white citizens among us would change the color of their skin, knowing all the terrible tribulations and humiliations that uh, African-Americans have to go through. Another powerful speech, and he ended by saying he was going to introduce legislation, which became the Civil Rights Act in 1964. That began under President Kennedy. But his major, I think, challenge to these people, and he challenged them on many fronts, was his efforts to end the Cold War with Cuba and with the Soviet Union. And he was doing it all through back channels, and he was escalating that effort in 1963 in the months before he was killed. This was a national security operation, and that's why it remains taboo to this day. Almost 60 years later, the CIA won't release documents to this day related to the Kennedy presidency and assassination. Look, organized crime and the CIA, though, were also intertwined. We've also talked about that, and I talk about that a lot in Brothers. And I know Peter Dale Scott, who's a good friend, and others have, have talked about how the sort of dark power in America, the deep state, 
organized crime comes together with the institutions of American power, like the CIA. And they do it for a basic reason, because the mafia knows how to kill people. And they're often used by the CIA to do their dirty work. But it's the CIA giving the orders. Bill Harvey was a major figure of suspicion during the House Select Committee on Assassinations investigation. Dan Hardway, who was a young investigator on the committee at the time, I know was looking closely at Bill Harvey. Bill Harvey was basically the head of black ops for the CIA. I think he brought his killing team home to kill Kennedy. So Bill Harvey has to be like one of the major figures of the suspicion of the Kennedy assassination. Now, Bill Harvey was not some rogue. He wouldn't have done this unless he knew that the old man, as they reverently called him, Alan Dulles and others had approved this and orchestrated it. So he was operating with the feeling that he had the backing of powerful people when he brought this killing team to Dallas. He was seen by his deputy, Mark Wyatt, on a plane headed to Dallas in the days before the assassination when he asked him, why why are you going to Dallas? Because Bill Harvey was stationed in Rome at the time. He was head of the CIA station in Rome. Why are you going to Dallas? He was, oh, just to look around. He was vague about it. Later, he said things to Wyatt after the assassination and made Wyatt suspect him, think that he was involved in some way. Mark Wyatt told his grown children that fact. He never testified. He should have testified to the House Assassinations Committee about Bill Harvey and about his suspicions, but he didn't. He was too afraid. There were a number of people within the CIA, I think, who knew what happened. And, you know, vague talked about it in vague terms, talked about it to their children and so on but should have come forward and told the world what they knew. So I think it was a national security hit. And that's what took the life of President Kennedy. It wasn't just the mob, but they used the mob to do their dirty work. Jack Ruby, who silenced Oswald because he knew too much. Lee Harvey Oswald was a low-level intelligence agent. When he was sent to the Soviet Union as a defector, he was a fake defector, obviously. He came back, he was totally unmolested after renouncing his citizenship and saying he was going to give the Soviets top secret documents from his days on a military base in Japan. He knew about the U-2 and other top secret programs, the U-2 spy plane. And he brought back a Russian wife with him who was connected to the KGB. The whole thing was ridiculous. He was never thrown in jail. Look at what happened to anyone remotely associated with the Taliban after 9-11. At the height of the Cold War, you're telling me that Lee Harvey Oswald, a defector of the Soviet Union, can come back and given money by the State Department to come back? No. He knew something. He didn't know. He wasn't a top-level guy. He didn't know everything about the plot. I don't even know if he knew that Kennedy was going to be the target. But he wasn't a shooter. There was no evidence to connect him to the sniper's rifle. He was a patsy. That's what he told the, the, the press he shot out in the Dallas police station. I'm a patsy. He knew he'd been, he'd been set up, and he was a low-level guy. He was a, a hapless victim as much as anyone in this whole story. And Jack Ruby, who was basically a thug, a mafia errand boy, was given the job of killing him and silencing forever, which he did. So the whole thing was sleazy. Anyone who has half a brain knows that it was sleazy. American media is cowardly. It's been cowardly for 60 years. American media, American academics, cowardly. Who's really gone after this in a major way? You can count them on one hand. We've done the research, the reporting that needs to be done on this. I'm one of them. 
but you can count on two hands, maybe. People have really moved the ball forward on this. Lots of citizen researchers have done low-level work, are American heroes for what they've done, but they didn't break through like Oliver Stone did with his film, or like, frankly, I did in a smaller way with Dell Shesborn Brothers. But I was lucky because I'm a journalist, I'm a trained journalist, I'm an experienced journalist, and I was given big advances for whatever reason by the book publishing companies that I worked for to produce the two books I did. I had the time to talk to a lot of people, and I did the legwork that had to be done. And anyone who's done the legwork comes to the same conclusion I did, which is the Kennedys were trying to change the country, change the world, and they were killed because of it. And Ted Sorensen called up Jim Douglas, another great hero, who wrote a book, Jeff K. The Unspeakable, and told him after his book came out that he got it right. McNamara called me up and told me the same thing. We got it right. So people who inside knew this story, McNamara, Sorensen, knew what happened. And they told people like Jim Douglas and me that we got the story right. It's just a shame that they didn't go on the record more about this. McNamara comes across, I think that you're fair to him. And it's interesting that he would call you because you're not entirely flattering. And you do pose the question that I think must haunt him. And I'm sure he read this. So where you say, you know, the, the mystery is, or the thing that he has to answer is why did he dutifully carry out Kennedy's schemes to withdraw from Vietnam, but do it in such a way as he could plausibly deny it until after the election, and then immediately just go along with the 180 by that Lyndon Johnson pulls off regarding Vietnam and so if McNamara called you and said, yeah, you did get the story correct, that's really something. Do you have anything else to add to that? Or No, he left that message on my answering machine. I think the band of brothers around the Kennedy really have a lot historically to, to answer for. I think you've opened up a very important subject. And I, of course, interviewed most of them, Schlesinger, Sorensen, McNamara, and so on, Dick Goodwin. Why didn't you speak out when you had a chance? Dick Goodwin did, to his credit. He wrote a review of an early conspiracy book in the New York Times. He spoke to Bobby Kennedy. He was one of the ones pushing Bobby to do more. So Dick Goodwin, after Bobby Kennedy was killed, went nuts for a while. And he went up and started doing arms training, I was told, by Jack Newfield, the reporter who knew him, in New England, because he said, they're not going to kill me. He thought at that point they were killing everyone connected to the Kennedy operation. Jackie Kennedy says she marries Aronassus because they're killing Kennedys in this country after Bobby's killed. I'm going to take my children overseas where they can be safe. So I think Jack and Bobby Kennedy were charismatic leaders, were strong men, were courageous men. And I think the men around them found courage when they were alive. Adam Walensky, Dick Goodwin, Bob McNamara. But when they were eliminated, when they were gone, they fell apart. And that's the truth. And I interviewed these men years later, decades later, and somewhere near the end of their lives when I talked to them. Most of them are now dead. And it was their last word and testament. They knew that Kennedy had been killed for a reason. They knew that Lee Harvey Oswald, the Warren Report, was a fairy tale made up for the American people. So they slowly... They trusted me. They began to tell me what they really thought happened. And just about every one of them thought that Kennedy had been killed by conspiracy. 
what Bobby Kennedy had thought. So the fact that they didn't say anything, they didn't do anything during their lifetime is a stain on their memories. And I did ask them one after the other, why didn't you speak up at the time? I asked Ben Bradley that. Ben Bradley was the head of the Washington Post. He was the top editor of the Washington Post. Woodward and Bernstein, all the famous, you know, investigative kind of energy in America during Watergate. That was Ben Bradley, who was the top editor, played by Jason Robards in the movie. A tough guy. He was a close friend of JFK. He was probably JFK's best friend in the Washington Press Corps. He hung out at the White House, he and his wife, Tony. He wrote a memoir about JFK, kind of a real sentimental, sweet book full of anecdotes about Kennedy. I asked Ben Bradley. By then, he was an emeritus. He still had an office at the uh, Washington Post. I interviewed him in his office. And uh, he was an older man. He couldn't me, you know, I was a fellow journalist. So he said, well, look, it's in Brothers. You can read that passage. I asked him and Don Hewitt, who was at 60 Minutes. They knew the truth. Why didn't you do something? Why didn't you investigate this? You could have gone behind the House Select Committee in the 70s and done something. You were editor then. Ben told me, you know what? I had just taken over the Washington Post then. People knew I was close to JFK. If I'd made this a major kind of mission in my life, to investigate his murder, they would have thought I was playing favorites, that I was obsessed, and it would have hurt my career. It would have brought me down, probably, as an editor. So that's why he didn't do it. So, you know, they sold out. That's the fact. Don Hewitt, same thing. He knew the truth. He knew it. The CIA and the mafia were involved in the Kennedy assassination. I said, why in 60 minutes? 60 minutes in Washington Post should have broken the story big time. In the late 70s, they could have gone behind the House Assassinations Committee because they always liked to tie their efforts to some kind of government investigation. There was a government investigation. The last one found there was a conspiracy. And people have forgotten that. I think, well, the Warren Report was the last government statement on this crime. It's not. So, again, these guys were making too much money. They had too much power. They liked going to the cocktail parties. They rub elbows with the CIA guys, with Richard Helms and others. They didn't want to sacrifice that world. Even the Kennedy people, like Arthur Schlesinger, he later told his sons his greatest regret on his deathbed was that he didn't write a book about the CIA. Well, that would have been an interesting book. Very interesting book. Why didn't he do it? He was still playing tennis with Dick Helms from the CIA years later. And he knew what an evil man he was. But hey, They'd been in the OSS together, you know? So they didn't, at the end of the day, want to risk being not invited to the right parties anymore, being ostracized from power, being not on the TV shows anymore, being non-people, non-persons, which is what you risk if you really go after the truth in this country. You risk becoming a non-person. Listening to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio, I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We'll continue hearing excerpts of this conversation between Aaron Good and David Talbot on the Kennedy Brothers after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Richard Goodwin is married to, to Doris Kearns Goodwin, right? And, and she's 
goes on like the Daily Show and offers the most corny, generic, banal versions of American history where they really just go into aspects of the presidents. And well, that's a whole other story. I interviewed Dick Goodwin multiple times. I interviewed Dick in person at their favorite Italian restaurant near their home in Concord. And Doris came. And I felt she was kind of his minder at that point. That Dick Goodwin wanted to tell me much more than she wanted him to tell me. And she would intervene during the interview and say, oh, Dick, please don't go there. Don't say that. She was his cop, I felt. And when she went to the bathroom during the dinner, he would tell me more. So I think she did not want to be ostracized from that world. And she didn't want Dick Goodwin to, to speak about the dark truth that he knew or suspected. And he told me he thought the CIA and the mafia had killed Kennedy. So he didn't want to dwell on that. By the point I interviewed Dick, he had decided that he had to listen to his wife. It makes sense, I guess, for her career to not be bursting the bubble of that is sort of her stock and trade. But the fact that she's there acting as his like cop in a restaurant to me is is kind of hysterical and yet it's of a piece with her whole persona and she was very close i don't know as an intern with lbj down the ranch in texas i mean there's something creepy about doris Quinn's could have been i know she does interesting books you know her book on the ftr white house during world war ii was interesting you know had some interesting anecdotes i don't know how truthful it is she's known as a plagiarist also yet you're right she gets on tv a lot and she seems to enjoy it along with the other, what do you call them? Court historians. That's right. Like Michael Beschloss, Ken Burns, Doris Kearns Goodwin. Was it David McCullough who got in trouble for making up interviews that he never had with Eisenhower? I think it was maybe David McCullough. No, it was Stephen Ambrose. Stephen Ambrose, okay. Who's another court historian. John Meacham is another court historian. Those are the people who get on TV all the time. I've never invited to be on TV. I think that you can understand why. So I appreciate you staying here so long to talk with us about this. And I'd like to give you a chance to tell our listeners what you think is the continuing relevance of the Kennedy assassination and Robert's failed attempt to try to get to the bottom of it. And and these issues, why are they still important now as this American empire seems to be unwinding kind of irreversibly. What's the significance of these in historical context? To put it simply, the bad guys won. I mean, imagine this country, what a different country it would have been if both Kennedys had lived, Bobby Kennedy had been elected president after JFK, if Martin Luther King had lived, if Malcolm X had lived. You know, the bad guys won at the barrel of a gun. They killed their way through their opposition. And assassination is one of the major tools that they used in the 1960s and 70s to cement their power. So the moral of my work and of other Kennedy researchers is unfortunately the bad guys won. And they took our country on a very dark trajectory. So we end up with a Donald Trump. We end up with a broken political system. We end up with a wealth divide that gets bigger and bigger all the time. We end up with a situation where we can't really fully address climate change, which is, I think, an existential issue, particularly for my children and my children's children for the next generations. 
you can't really fix anything that's wrong about the country anymore because of the greedy and ruthless people who run the country. And that kind of rule was cemented during the 1960s after the Kennedys were killed and Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. I think those four people in particular were trying to take the country in a very different direction and would have. So that's the moral, unfortunately, of our story. The bad guys won. The fight goes on, though, to enlighten the American people. That's my job. That's the job of people like me, like writers, other filmmakers. Oliver Stone, thank God he's out there with his new documentary. I'm trying right now to push Hollywood forward. Three different sets of producers have optioned my books. They never seem to be able to get them on the screen. 15 years later, we'll see if they do. Finally, it's a battle. As Arthur Schlesinger, the court historian for Kennedy, said, history is an ongoing argument. And that's what we can do at the end of the day. It's the only thing we can do is keep doing the work, doing the research, doing the reporting, and trying to get the truth out. Thank you very much for spending time with me today. I always recommend Brothers and the Devil's Chessboard to anybody if I talk to them about this stuff. So uh, it's an honor to be able to talk to you today. And thanks again. Thank you, Aaron. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, our guest has been Aaron Good, and we've been sharing excerpts of a conversation that Aaron Good had with historian and journalist David Talbot about his book, Brothers, The Hidden History of the Kennedy Years. Now, this is all part of a new series of podcasts called American Exception. It is based on the name of a book by Aaron Good that's coming out this spring called American Exception, Empire, and the Deep State. And in particular, today's episode involved a sort of mini-series within the American Exception podcast called Destiny Betrayed, looking at the JFK assassination. So Aaron Good, we have a couple minutes left here, and we wanted to do a little afterward about what people just heard and wanted to give you an opportunity to talk more about what's coming up with American Exception. Aaron Good. That episode with David Talbot is great in that it laid out a lot of the history of what Kennedy was up against as a president, and then also Bobby's quest to try to save his brother's legacy after the fact before Bobby is, of course, assassinated. And it's important to understand as we increasingly realize that our supposedly democratic system is really a a top-down system of governance and that elections don't seem to be able to reorient the ship of state in any meaningful way. And the U.S. still wants to define itself by its various enemies, regardless of what the facts are about things that are going on in the world. And so we're at a time when this empire is declining and democracy is more of a ritual, which allows us to give our consent to being governed supposedly. That's why I think the JFK assassination is so important, because he was the last person to try to stand up to these top-down forces with some degree of success. So the other episodes include interviews with Zach Sklar and Jim Eugenio, who are both the screenwriters of the original JFK by Oliver Stone and JFK's new documentary, JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass. I also have episodes with Peter Dale Scott, who has been working on this case for a long, long time, since the late 60s or early 70s. 
And I have a number of other things that I've done with Peter Dell Scott. We've worked together on articles related to 9-11 and to the Masood assassination. There's an episode, two episodes actually, on Vietnam with John Newman and James Galbraith. One of those is already out. Those I'm very happy about. Once you get out of the JFK episodes, which are about half of the episodes, I have an episode with Lawrence Wilkerson talking about 9-11, and then we get into Colin Powell a little bit, who had died recently. Also have an episode on the Masood assassination with Peter Del Scott and Pepe Escobar and John Kiriakou. I have an episode that's a tribute to Peter Del Scott featuring Daniel Ellsberg and Joshua Oppenheimer. I have an episode with Colleen Rowley talking about the FBI and the failures that she saw firsthand that prevented 9-11 from being exposed before the fact. And an episode with Oliver Stone talking about his films and other issues related to uh, JFK and so on. I have an upcoming episode with Peter Kuznick talking about his class that he teaches at American University, Oliver Stone's America. That's coming out really soon. And more interviews with Greg Polgrain, a great historian from Australia on Indonesia. Lisa Pease is coming up on a future episode. Jefferson Morley is going to be interviewed to talk about JFK. I have some Dan Ellsberg interviews that I'm going to post in some way. So there's a lot of stuff coming up that I'm really excited about. Well, Aaron Good, we're really honored to feature your work here again on the Project Censored show. And for our listeners that are really into deep state history, that are into these untold histories, hidden histories, dare we say in some cases outright censored histories, you really fill a huge gap with the work that you're doing, your book, American Exception on Empire in the Deep State, your podcast, American Exception. Aaron Good, thanks so much for joining us once again on the Project Censored show, and I'm sure we'll be catching up with you and talking more about these very important conversations you're having. Thanks, Mickey. Always great to be here. You've been listening to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio, established in 2010 by myself and Peter Phillips. I'm Mickey Huff, the executive producer and host of the program. Anthony Fest is our longtime senior producer. The Project Censored Show airs on roughly 50 stations around the United States from Maui to New York. To learn more about our work or find any of our previous archive programs, go to projectcensored.org. Please follow and like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the official Project Censored Show on your cell phone's podcast application. Please feel free to share your feedback about our work at projectcensored.org. Thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Stay well. We'll see you next time. Think about crimes perpetrated by criminal minds with political ties, habitualized alibis, disguised and other guys of democracy, politics, and the apocalypse. Got the skies looking ominous. So the ocean burned bright with waves full of poison. Genocide wars fall for little poison. The weapons manufactured pay for why taxing all the bridges and the levees and the mines collapsing. All the prisons build the capacity citizens. And the times for the master thief, combine and conquer, seal the masterpiece. Open your eyes and realize what's happening. Times running out the reach all potential.